I am your host, Kika Matos, and starting today, I will be with you on the first Wednesday of every month, starting at 2 p.m. My goal for Kika's Corner is to focus on interesting topics or fascinating people or controversies, of which there are many these days, but I digress. Whatever the focus of the show is, Kika's Corner will always have a New Haven edge and will hopefully be a fun and interesting space. Before we get started, I want to dedicate today's show to Regina Winters, a New Haven hero who died last Sunday morning. Regina was one of those people who made the world and New Haven a better place. Regina, we love you and we will miss you. On the studio with me today is a young man who is a badass and is making waves both at Yale and in New Haven. He's an advocate, a writer, and a student leader. He's been fighting on the front lines for racial justice, not just at Yale, but also within the New Haven community. Welcome, Sebi. Let me tell you a little bit about who Sebi is. Sebi Medina Tayak is originally from the Piscataway Indian Nation of Maryland. He's the former president of the Association of Native Americans at Yale and the Ivy Native Council, and is the founder and head singer of Blue Feather Powwow Drum Group. He's a member of La Unidad Latina, which is Yale's Latino fraternity, and an organizer with Unidad Latina en Acción, which is a New Haven-based grassroots immigrant advocacy group. He's also co-founder and managing uh, editor for Down Magazine, which is a campus uh, publication by and for students of color. Sebi, we're really happy to have you on the show today. Thank you so much, Kika. It's a, it's a big honor to be here on your first uh, show. Thank you. I'm very excited. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you're originally from the Piscataway Nation of Maryland. Were you raised in Maryland and with the tribe? So yeah, I'm actually um, I'm actually from a suburb of D.C. called Tacoma Park, um, which had a lot to do with my formation. Now, I can say Tacoma Park is our traditional uh, ancestral lands, um, but our tribe is actually based about an hour south of D.C., um, in a few places along the Potomac River. But having grown up so close to my tribal land, I was able to uh, grow up within that culture and also within that consciousness of being a member of a sovereign nation. And more than that, being a free person. When I can go to my land there, I, I do genuinely feel like I'm a free person. So it puts all these things, all these policies, laws, systems, it puts them into perspective. In a historical sense. So talk to me a little bit about what you mean when you say being a free person. So sovereignty is something that I think applies to uh, a lot of different situations and, and contexts. In federal Indian law, sovereignty refers to being federally recognized by the United States of America, which is our colonizer and oppressor. So I try to avoid that framework saying, oh, are we federally recognized? Are we technically sovereign? I think sovereignty is a concept that goes much deeper than that, um, and it's something that um, long, long predates uh, this country and its constitution. So sovereignty is is being free. And so when we talk about liberation movements, that's where we, where I see the native struggle intersecting a lot with the immigrant struggle, and with with uh, black movements and with other uh, and with queer and and women's liberation struggles. Is it's about freedom. And it's about having control over yourself, your body, your community. And Sebi, uh, somewhere in your background, in addition to being um, 
from the Piscataway Nation. There is some Latino in you there somewhere. Yes, my fa- my father is is Colombian. Um, came to this country uh, for college in the in the in the late eighties. So you know, I grew up bilingual um, with that that sort of consciousness of also Latinidad and the, the immigrant experience too. You are, um, I don't think anybody could argue that you have been making waves and rabble rousing since he got to New Haven a couple of years ago. Um, and you have been steeped in the racial justice fight. You have been steeped in the immigrant rights fight. Uh, and I'm curious to know where you got your social justice grounding. Well, a lot of that comes from my upbringing. Um, my, my, I mean, all my ancestors, I think have been freedom fighters, at least on, on the native side. Uh, there was a time when merely living was a huge struggle and maintaining your culture, maintaining your language. These are things you could be, and people were killed for and, um, and, uh, and enslaved for, and people are still locked up for that. So I think on that side, it's very much that consciousness of uh, not being an activist, but rather being a warrior, someone who has to fight for the preservation of themselves, their family, and their community. Um, so I grew up very much with that consciousness. My, my great uncle, who's the chief of our tribe, it was, a, was an activist with the American Indian Movement. Which and was, this is Billy Redwing, Tayak? Yeah, that's him. Um, activist with the American Indian Movement, involved the Trail of Broken Treaties, invasion of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, but, you know, my father um, was also someone who was very invested in, in peace and, and uh, healing in Colombia, which is his, his home country. So I grew up around a lot of Latin American activists and indigenous activists, um, especially concerning the Salvadoran uh, indigenous movement. Um, Salvadoran Indians were... were among the most prosecuted during the civil war having aligned sort of with the left because of the land reforms and and the kind of socialist tendencies um but we're not we're so poor that they they weren't armed they couldn't fight back they didn't have political clout so both the right and the left came down and so a lot of them fled to washington dc where they kind of syncretized with my with my community both being indigenous and so you know i, I was very surrounded by the fact that wow the indian wars are still going on so was there a lot of social justice organizing and collaboration between uh, the Piscataway and the indigenous people from El Salvador? Very much. And in many ways, I was the translator. Um, language or culture or both? Um, most, mostly language, okay. I would say, you know, because, you know, they would all the a lot of the Salvadoran Indians would come to our ceremonies and our functions and our socials. And so when my uncle was giving a speech or a sermon or something, I'd often have to go up being someone who was versed in both English and Spanish, I have to go up and translate and realize that, you know, indigeneity is something that's not tied to, to these, these nation states with their borders and their languages, that it's something that transcends our, our whole hemisphere. And I'm, I, I think my heritage and my person is very much hem- hemispheric. And talk to me about uh, your arrival in New Haven. You, it sounds like you are somebody who would be an interesting and appealing student 
for any university uh, worth its its weight. And um, Yale managed to snap you up. Yale is a very elite institution, and uh, with it comes a lot of privileges, but it is also an institution that has had a checkered history with both the New Haven community and with students of color. So talk to me a little bit about why Yale, and um, I want to hear a little bit more about uh, the background behind the Yale, what I call the Yale Student Uprising. I think it's got a different it's got a different name elsewhere because in New Haven we hear um, a version that unfortunately has been perpetuated by the media, which I think is a very biased one. Um, so tell me a little bit about why Yale. And then from there, I just want to talk to you a little bit about what the experience was last year in agitating of, uh, with and for students of color at Yale. So I came to Yale very much to, you know, I, I, while I do believe that education is very important, I don't buy into these truisms of the liberal, art, liberal arts education that I think um, are very much bound up with this idea of of the the American dream um, that no matter where you're from and we're so diverse and we're going to get people from all over the place and we're going to make a more equal society by sending everyone to this colonial institution that that um, you know in many ways steps on the backs of uh, people in New Haven brown and black people in New Haven is built on stolen land I, I don't buy into that concept that merely going to Yale is a is a moral good. Right. Um, in fact, I think in many ways it's the contrary. So it was a difficult. It it wasn't a difficult decision because it's an incredible opportunity, and um, it's something that will equip me, will equip me for what I need to do. And when I when I started leaving my uncle, and I always kind of had this this thing where I was always I was the undercover Indian, quote quote. Because, what does that mean? Because I look white. Okay. And I, and that's something that kind of I always grew up with, and. I look different than my cousins and I look different than even my sister um, and my parents. I, I just came out this way and I think. Well, black folks would say passing for white. You can pass for white. Very, very, very easily. <laughs> very, very easily. So, you know, this is, and, and it's not just the color of my skin. It's also the way I code, you know, um, like whenever we'd go to ceremonies and stuff, I'd always have like my nose in a book and my cousins would tease me. They're like, you're such a nerd. You're acting white. Why are you acting white? And, you know, and so, but my uncle, instead of teasing me for it, obviously he saw sort of potential in it. He said, you need to, the, the warrior today, um, in what we're doing right now, the warrior doesn't, doesn't have a gun right now. Mm -hmm. You know, he, my, my, my uncle held a gun. His, his father held a gun. His father held a gun. He said, now that's not what we need. We need someone with a degree and that's more powerful. So I'm here, I'm here to get armed. You know, I'm here, I'm here to get the tools I need to, uh, to, to pull off, pull this off, to pull this work of liberation off. And, and I think that that's what I'm here so, for. And I'm, I'm putting my liberation before my liberal arts education. You're listening to Kika's Corner on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio, broadcast at 103.5 FM and live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. We are in the studio this afternoon with Sevi Medina Tayak, who's a student leader and community advocate in New Haven. And Sevi, you were just sharing with us that you were here to get armed in the modern way that warriors uh, get armed. Have you accomplished that? You're about to head out. You graduate in May. Do you feel 
that you are now armed? Very much so. And, and it's not just with the things I go to classes with. I think the diploma is a key that opens a lock that wasn't built for us. You know, there's doors that we're not supposed to go into. And I think the diploma cracks the code in many ways. So I'm very happy to have that piece of paper. Um, a lot of people are like, oh, it's not about the paper. But you know what? It is about the paper sometimes. And, you know, that's something I wanted to pursue. Um, but also the connections I made, the, the lessons I've learned in, in, in the struggle at Yale. Um, building the movement at Yale is something that I think is really applicable as I move forward. You know, how, you know, I have access to all these places. How do I bring the struggle into these high places? Um, and how can I make that have an effect on, you know, my people and the grassroots? So, um, I think the, uh, I think the movement at Yale was, was more educational than I think any class I've ever been in. And we very much learned the way we, we went along. I will say, though, that maybe a regret, maybe this opens more door, more questions, but a regret I had was that it wasn't, um, it didn't intersect with any of the movements in New Haven. Um, it was something I felt was very divorced from the struggles going on in New Haven. So let's talk a little bit about that. It, it sounds to me that in the process of, of you getting um, quote-unquote armed at Yale, you also uh, were part of a vanguard that really agitated in a significant way, in a way that students had not agitated at for a long time at Yale. Um, and from the outsider's perspective, I know that part of what triggered um, the, the student um, uprising was a deeply racist and offensive email that was written um, by one of your um, college, what do you call them, heads of Masters. Masters, yes. Master. I was trying to avoid that language, but one of your masters, um, Erica Christakis, and um, that seemed to have triggered students. And then there was also another incident about uh, that involved young women of color not being allowed into a fraternity party. Uh, and so from the outside, you know, those of us in New Haven and I think around the country got this sense that, well, there was this one incident and then there was this other incident. And then there was this uprising of students of color where students really unleash their, their passions and their anger in very public ways. Um, but it seemed to me, I, I guess I would make two observations and I'm curious to know what, what you think about them. One is, um, it seemed like the media really appropriated this uh, issue and in a very superficial way, and quite frankly, in um, uh, in in a deeply racist way, in many uh, publications, uh, belittled students of color, and then quickly pivoted towards uh, turning this into an issue of free speech. Um, but the other thing is, you know, it seemed like an insular uprising. And one of the things that I was really curious about is why there were no efforts to reach out beyond the Yale institution by students of color to those of us who agitate in the community and are very steeped in, in the racial justice world. So I'm curious to know what the insider perspective is and then also what your thoughts are about ways that we can break down the walls between advocates at Yale and advocates in New Haven. So I think that's a, that's a really good question, a really kind of multi-layered question, right? So we have the issue, the issue of free speech, which I think can be written off pretty quickly in that we were speaking freely, right. they were speaking freely, 
they've been speaking freely for centuries. Mm -hmm. We've been speaking freely for maybe like, I mean, I want to say five decades, but that's so wrong. That's, it's not, not even five decades. So, so free speech, I think we can just lock that in its silly old chest and, and move on. So the, the, um, the, uh, so the, the issue with Yellow New Haven, and this again ties into, you know, what. Well, let's back up a little bit. Talk to me about the. So you are a, uh, you, you're part Native American, part Latino, and um, you've been at Yale now for almost four years. What is the atmosphere like for students of color, especially those who are steeped in the social justice world? Because my sense is that these two incidents were not isolated incidents that led to the uprising, but in fact, I'm going to guess that it, it, this, these were two uh, along the spectrum of many issues that get led students to organize. Is that actually, what is it? So they were, they, they were the emblem. They were, they were the emblem of this sort of pervasive and permissive or, or pervasive uh, systemic institutional and very obscure racism that was happening at Yale because you know, because of the grooming that I think a lot of people in this institution have gotten, a lot of white people in this institution have gotten, they know how to not say overtly racist mm -hmm. things, right? They, they think them, right? They think them, right? But they don't, they don't know how to, they know how to not say it because they, the word politically correct, that's a term invented for, for racist people. Politically correct means what you can, means how to filter what you think into what you say that so you won't in, offend anyone but your thoughts are offensive. So political correctness very much serves the racist. Um, it, it's, it's not about political correctness. We don't want anyone to be politically correct because politically correct just means you're, you're censoring yourself. So I think what these, these two incidents represented was two sides of what has been going on at Yale for a long time. The, the, le the least complicated one is what happened at that party. Um, that is the most overt racist thing of, of, between the two, right? White girls only. That's like, that's some Jim Crow stuff. I'll tell you. Right. That's, that is some Jim Crow stuff, like very, very overt, right? And it, it ties into beauty standards. It ties into all those kinds of things. And so that was easy sort of to point out and demonize. And everyone's gonna be like, well, we don't know if it happened or if it didn't happen. But that kind of thing happens all the time. And, you know, I, I two days later, I had a freshman, a, a black woman who's a freshman, come to me and say, or, you know, or I ran into her in the, in the, in the middle of the sidewalk and she was sobbing and she was with um, a native freshman. She said, someone just called me the N-word on campus, mm. you know, and, you know, that didn't get publicized, but that just, that stuff happens. Like, that stuff happens at Yale um, and, and in, on our campus and in New Haven. And the email was more complicated and, and people are like, man, why are you making such a big deal out of nothing? And the reality is like, the email, the the interesting thing about the email was that it it indicted the left, it indicted the like liberal, mm -hmm. because Erica Christakis is liberal, Erica Christakis is left, um, she's a well intentioned feminist or lefty person, right? And but what she said is so so representative of something so deeply harmful, and I was offended, right? I don't think anyone was out there in the streets because they were offended by an email. And that's what I think the media missed was they thought we were offended by this one thing. Right. Um, but no, what, what she wrote was a very obvious, like overt and public indictment 
of the left's inability to understand racial issues. And I think that's what we're protesting is, yes, we're all liberal here, but you can still be liberal and you can still use sensitive language and you can be horribly racist Mm -hmm. because the next day after she sent out that email on Halloween, my friend who's a native woman, she's a senior, ran into a Yale student wearing a headdress and she followed what Erica Christakis told her. She went up to the man and said, hey, you know, I'm native. I'm from the Crow Reservation. My elders wear those headdresses and they have to earn them. And it's, it's something that's deeply, deeply offensive to me. And the guy started doing the war whooping and he said, no one gives a dang about what you say because, um, because you're native and uh, started yelling racist things flicked her off, started approaching her, like getting very close and like kind of pushing her backward. That's the violence. And that's the violence that Erica Christakis is a part of. And so it's, was this the trigger for students to organize? Or what was the trigger point? How did you all come together? I think there was a teach-in afterward. And I think, um, you know, there was an email thread. Sorry, we had actually, this is something that, that the media didn't report and something that that is totally overlooked was that students of color have been organizing on campus for, for four years okay. or, or the, the four years that I've been here. I've been part of students of color organizing and that, that started kind of our junior year, which was last year. Um, and then we had a rally called the unite Yale. We actually, it was, it was kind of small, wasn't very well covered. It actually kind of got rained on because a bunch of uh, conservative white male students came out and did a counter protest and that got as much coverage as we did, even though there were eight of them and there were like 50 of us. So, you know, we, and that was bringing together all the cultural centers, people dealing with mental health. So we, those networks were already established and we organized along those networks to reignite, you know, but then people were so sort of upset and, and, and realized, you know, it brought people, had people start talking about what they had been through, you know, you know, we had, um, you know, one of my a students who's a friend, she's a native and black woman, said that her coach, her track coach, called her like a hoe. Wow. She's, he said, oh, these are my hoes. He said that to the black, to the black athletes. And he didn't say it to the white athletes. So, you know, that it, everyone brought those things out. And then we looked around and realized like, wow, everyone is horribly like traumatized and victimized by mm-hmm. all this racism on campus. And like, let's do something about it. And my understanding is that you presented a set of demands for the institution um, shortly thereafter. Were those demands met to your satisfaction? And to what extent are you still agitating? I think everyone was in a, forced into a position where they had to re-traumatize themselves for the spectacle of the media um, so that we could get media pressure on the administration to do something. I think you know, we mounted sort of a crisis or catastrophe moment so that um, we could we could show the urgency of what was going on. Um, so, you know, that that's how we got some of our demands met. And to be to be honest, like our, our, our demands are ambitious. We made the you, you ask for a mile, you get an inch. Mm-hmm. So that was our strategy. You know, I, and I'm actually I'm actually really happy. Um, with what we got and, and not everyone's going to agree with me on that, but I, I personally think we got about as much as we could have gotten um, out of this administration because the administration doesn't have the power. It's the corporation. Uh, you're listening to Kika's Corner on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio broadcast at 103.5 FM and live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. 
And uh, this afternoon, uh, on the launch of our first show, we are joined uh, in the studio by Sebi Medina Tayak, who is a badass student leader and community advocate. So, Sebi, before we we uh, transition onto the next topic and wrap up, um, of the demands that you that the university conce- conceded, which do you think are the most critical? And are students continuing to agitate for? Um, more racial justice within the campus? Um, I think the agitation is over. We had some like really big rallies, some really successful things, and we got a we got a center for the study of indigeneity, um, race, and gender, I think. We we got a we got we got a good thing. That's a good thing. And I'll tell you that is the most critical thing. What we really wanted was the promotion of the ethnicity, race, and migration department to departmental status. Um, but this is I, I think this is a good victory um the center for the study of of these sort of un- underrepresented narratives and the reason i think it's the most critical the reason it's more important than erica christakis getting fired more important than um reporting more important than um sensitivity training is that this center means that we have faculty and we need the faculty because we cycle in and out every four years but the faculty is allows things to get sustained and this movement was very inspired by many faculty members who were having us read, you know, they have us read Vine Deloria, Audre Lorde, Sonia Nazario. They're making us read these things that inform um, our, our actions and make us do sort of an educated uh, movement. So it's and about the faculty. You yourself started a magazine led by students of color called Down Magazine. Talk to us a little bit about that. So I used to write for the Yale Daily News, and the Yale Daily News um, is, is actually an incredible publication, probably one of the best um, student student publications in America. And I like have a lot of respect for the people who do, and actually the um, their editorial board is now, I think, half women of color. So they've changed a lot over the past two years. But when I was there, there was no space for writers of color. And in many ways, there's no space for writers of color, especially when you're talking about low-income first-generation people there's just no space for writers. So, so you know, there's this constipation that exists mm-hmm. among writers of color. So they go on Facebook and they write these long, beautiful things. I've seen some of those. Beautiful. And I'm just like, wait, wait, wait. They need an Publish outlet. Publish that. You yes. need an outlet. So we took what was already there and we just gave it an outlet. And it's been incredible. You're able to cover the movement from the inside. So you should check us out down and, at Yale.com. Yes, I was going to say for those who are listening, tell us how people can access the publication. Um, yeah, it's down at Yale.com. We have a website. We update it every week. And, you know, honestly, it gets better and better. And I'm I'm just so impressed. And I was the journalist sort of, I was, I was the journalist on the team. Everyone else was like an activist or an advocate or a writer or whatever. I was like, no, no, no. We're going to, this is going to have a journalism angle because we got to get out there and like, we got to tell the truth. So that's, that's what I was able to bring to the table. Amen. Uh, and uh, I raised a question. I want to circle back. Um, uh, to you on that, which is how do we uh, work to break down the walls between progressive students of color and people of color in New Haven who have a racial justice lens and have a, a greater vision for New Haven about what could be achieved in this community? So I think the primary reason that NextDL, which is what we, what we decided to call our movement, um, did not reach over sort of that iron gate was I think students were in crisis and very much like suffering in almost every aspect of their lives, academic, personal, social. When we put things together, it was 
people think that there was like this wide network and that we, we met in secret meetings and stuff. And it was like a lot of it happened over email, text, group me, and it was just text your friends. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what, Yale students don't have friends in New Haven. And that's a huge problem. And, and, and that's a problem that is true among students of color as much as it is among white students. And I think a big problem of this, and this is again going back to the idea of the liberal arts education, the American dream, because a lot of you know students, especially coming from lower income backgrounds, you know, are here with high aspirations, um, economic aspirations, educational aspirations, political aspirations, and they very much are bought into this way. Like Yale is this like big you know rung of the ladder that I can climb up and and either serve my people or serve myself. But I think. I think part of the issue, and this is, and you know, this is um, something I might catch heat for among other students of color, is, you know, as long as we aspire to be, um, aspire to greatness through Yale, we're aspiring to whiteness. You know what I mean? Like, 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 the the problem is when you say I want to be treated the same as any other Yale student, you're saying I want to be treated like in this ridiculously unsustainable, ultra-privileged way. And while I think racism at Yale needs to go, it needs to go, I do think that if you want to be treated the same as a white Yaley, that is a ridiculous expectation because the white Yaley is treated in a way that is unsustainable and parasitical to New Haven. And um, It also reinforces structures, racial structures. Exactly, because they're always going to let one of us come up you know they're always gonna try to get the 10 percent, mm-hmm. right they want to skim off the top and like i don't want to be a part of that and that's that's part of what kind of worried me a lot worries me a lot about student of color organizing at yale is you want equality and, the, and this goes back to just the general struggle people fighting for civil rights and equality without thinking about the broader human rights perspective without thinking about their sovereignty and their freedom you're not free if you're buying into this this white power structure Uh, you're listening to Kika's Corner on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio, broadcast at 103.5 FM and live streamed at New Haven Independent Aurora. Um, we are uh, at the end of our hour. I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you, Sebi. Uh, and until next time, I leave you with the Afro-Semitic experience performing Sente. He is an on-time god. <laughs>